Hi, listeners. This is Josh Zygmunt, content director for Simplify Media and host of the HR Works podcast. Welcome to the debut episode of the HR Works Showcase, our latest addition to the HR Works podcast family. Look, our team here at HR Daily Advisor love keeping you, the HR professional, up to date with the latest insight and conversations featuring members of the community covering the topics that matter most to the world of human resources and people operations. We take so much joy in giving our friends and colleagues a platform to share their thoughts, ideas, and personal stories. And here's another great opportunity to showcase and give a voice to the great people of the HR community. With HR Works Showcase, we're partnering with brands you know and love from the world of human resources, handing over the microphone and letting them hit record. Today, we're kicking things off with a multi-part series called The Era, brought to you by our partners at Bamboo HR. Listen as Bamboo HR's CEO, Brad Wrencher, speaks with HR experts, executives, and workers about the importance of people-first strategy that will lead all types of organizations into success as we enter the employee experience era. Let's check out the pilot episode of Bamboo HR's The Era. Hello, listeners. I'm Brad Wrencher, CEO of Bamboo HR. Before diving in, I want to take a moment to say thank you. I know you have endless listening options with millions of shows spanning limitless topics and interests from business to sports to media and entertainment. Shoot, I just learned Harry Potter fans have dozens of podcast options to choose from, ranging from one that focuses on the story's politics to multiple options where the hosts are drunk. But here you are with us. We know your time is precious, so thank you for sharing some of it with us. I believe we do have something worthwhile to say and commit to add value with your day with every episode. So what do we have to say? At Bamboo HR, we believe employee experience is the foundation on which you build your business, even and especially in times of change and disruption. In fact, I believe we're now entering the employee experience era where employee obsessed is the new customer obsessed. And if we could summarize the content of this podcast and distill it into one thought, it's this. We believe the surest way to succeed as an organization is to focus first on the employee experience. Over the course of this season, we want to explore this idea and we're excited for you to join us on this journey. Welcome to the pilot episode of The Era. Your culture code is only as good as the degree to which you live it every day. If the head leaders are not talking about it and thinking about it every day, no one else is. I can't tell you how many times I've had a conversation with someone and they use the term that they feel like they were burned by HR. The company doesn't make the employee successful. The employee makes the company successful. You get more ROI when somebody is more engaged and invested in your mission and cause. We build careers, not software. Probably more than anything, people are looking for like validation. You know, you really do feel alone. Maybe we need to go earlier in the process and obsess over the experience our employees are having with our company as much or more than our customers. Hi, I'm your host, Brad Wrencher. A few questions to get us started today. Should HR report directly to an organization's board of directors? Can culture be created and evolved in the same way a product roadmap guides product evolution? And what happens when an organization invests money, but not actual humanity, into creating a mission? Today, we've got a three-part series. First, we'll explore the psychological contract between employer and employee, and the bind on HR to serve both. 
Then we'll hear about a company vision discredited moments after rolling it out. And finally, Katie Burke, Chief People Officer at HubSpot, shares her take on what it means to grow better. Part one, the double bind. You know, in my first few days of radiation, um, you're set up with the same team. Um, and I was set up to go for almost seven weeks. So you go every weekday for almost seven weeks. This is Rebecca Weaver, founder and CEO of HR Uprise and cancer survivor. Her organization, HR Uprise, connects employees and independent HR coaches to help navigate challenging workplace issues. She's focused on leveling the playing field for employees. Long story short, it was, it was just a whole process. The, the team was just a hive of activity around me. And they're getting set up and they're doing their thing and they're marking me up, which feels really dehumanizing. But it's sort of, I guess, a necessary evil for this process. I was feeling both literally and metaphorically vulnerable in this entire process. And they just continued to move around me, move around me. I even started to cry at one point and nobody noticed. And it wasn't even really about that as much as I was really just a part of this team getting through their day. I was not the patient being centered in the care as I now know that I really should have been, but I was really just a part of them getting through their day. But then I was also looking back as an HR professional and I started to wonder, I mean, how many times have I created this type of environment for someone else? And of course, it would not ever be intentional, but I was also understanding, you know, so much more about our impact over intent. At the same time, I'm watching interviews with women like Gretchen Carlson, for example. So she was one of the first women to come forward and make allegations of sexual harassment against Roger Ailes from the Fox News Network. And I heard an interview with her and somebody asked her, hey, if somebody else is harassed in the workplace, what do you recommend? And the first thing she said was, don't go to HR. And when I looked at that, I thought, you know, HR really doesn't need defending, but we really need a different way of operating. And I just didn't see enough of that conversation happening within HR circles. What was interesting is in the beginning, I was obviously talking directly to HR about all the ways in which we need to get our act together and do things differently and have more honest dialogue. And from the very, very beginning, I started to hear from non-HR people. And they started to reach out to me asking questions like, I saw someone being harassed. What can I do to be a good ally without getting myself in trouble with HR? Or I was asked to sign an NDA. What should I know? Or I just found out I'm making a whole lot less than my male counterpart. Can I do anything about that? Those questions just kept coming. And so it really planted the seed. It was really speaking to this huge need to have more honest conversation about what I call the double bind. If you ask most people what HR's role is, they would tell you um, HR is an employee advocate, right? We're here for the employees. And, and a lot of HR people would say that too. And yet, if push comes to shove, our primary obligation really is to the organization. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but I do think we need more honest conversation about, about that part of the role of HR. So for example, somebody comes to HR looking for who they think is the employee advocate, who they think is one thing, and what they get is a representative of the company. 
There's nothing necessarily inherently wrong with that. There are lots of roles within a company where their job is to protect the company. It's just that we don't talk about that nearly as much as HR with HR. And we talk about how HR is all these other things. You know, when it really comes down to it, if there's a conflict between what's best for the company and what's best for the employee, then the company wins out every single time. That primary obligation that the HR has to the company is going to override even what is best for the employee. Let's take that example of harassment. Even in the investigation, if HR is doing the investigation, which they frequently do, um, they're frequently tasked with conducting an investigation for harassment. Even in the investigation, HR's job is to protect the company, not from the perpetrator, but from the victim. The legal concerns most often are about what will the victim do? Will the victim come back and sue us for some reason? Even in the case of anti-harassment training, you look at that. A lot of states now require the training. A lot of HR people would say, absolutely. You know, we don't want an environment where people are subjected to that. And I think it's really, that's absolutely sincere. However, the reason that we require, you know, and you look at all of the legal requirements that are in there, you're actually doing the training to protect the company from, again, the victim. In all my years of HR, and I've led huge teams and small teams, what I would always teach my teams was, you know, our goal is to find the solution that is both best for the employee and best for the company. And I've also heard a lot of HR people say, and I probably have said it myself in the past, where we say, you know, what's best for the employee, what's best for the company don't have to be mutually exclusive. And that's, that's also true, but it's also beside the point. You know, when it really comes down to it, if there's a conflict between what's best for the company and what's best for the employee, then the company wins out every single time. It's really common when we have this conversation that it can sometimes very quickly, especially based on people's own personal experiences, it can very quickly devolve into a conversation about, you know, HR is bad, HR is, you know, not there for me. And so I interpret that as HR is out to get me. And, and I, again, I don't think that's really the case in most, I mean, there are bad HR people, just as there are bad, you know, people in every profession. But I don't think that's the case most of the time. I think this is partly a structural issue. So when you ask the question of whether, you know, could we even really structure this so that there is true advocacy with for employees within a company, I absolutely think we can, but we are going to have to think about it entirely differently. The, the structure of HR that exists today has been in place for over 100 years. And there really has not been any true innovation until now. So I think we really, you know, we... I've seen a bit of a shift over the past few years to, again, HR wears all of these hats. I think we're going to have to see much more specialization going forward if we really do truly want employees to have true advocacy within the organization. We have to be willing to do things like, you know, for the person who is supposed to be that employee advocate, they have to report up 
maybe not even to the CEO, maybe they have to report to the board of directors so that they can maintain true independence. That that one kind of rocks people when I, when I throw that out there. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, we, we really are going to have to think about very, very different ways of operating. And, and for me, I think the crux of it really is the issue of independence for HR. Rebecca's story reminds me of the work we have ahead of us. But it also gets me excited about the opportunity. I believe there is a way to align employer and employee needs. In fact, I think there are many organizations already leading the way by focusing on building cultures that do just that. In a minute, we're going to hear from Katie Burke, someone who has devoted her career to answering these questions. But first, part two, $10,000. My name's Mark. I am a project manager by trade. Um, I've been a project manager for probably 18 years in various capacities. I had a dual from Utah State in HR and economics, dual majors, and I thought HR was a great path, actually. And so I worked at a printing facility where they printed like phone bills and, and managed over 300 temp employees right out of college. And I wanted to move to Salt Lake. I wanted to be close to my family, and I really did not like the administrative end of HR, you know, the firings and, and things like that. So we, I got a job as a junior project manager at a, a company that, that did large format printing and, and trade shows um, displays. And from there, I became a, you know, over a 12-year career there, became a project manager and then a senior project manager. Then I managed a team of, of project managers and then um, became a director of international product where I helped um, develop products that we had in a facility in, in China. It was all about selling to venture capitalist firms. It was all about releasing a certain number of products so we could show our progression. In the 12 years I was there, I think we sold four times. And so every time that happens, a new culture comes in and a new uh, mission comes in, a new drive towards something else. And I was at the company about seven years. And we had just had a change in leadership, actually. So we, we got a new CEO. They were doing some rebranding, new logo. And as part of that, um, the CEO got up and, and presented uh, a new mission uh, and vision statement for the company. And it was neat because we never really had that before. We never had really had direction, uh, especially being kind of a satellite production facility from the main, the main office. We always kind of felt like we we're going rogue. So it was really exciting when they started reading it. And, and then they explained it really well. This is what it means for us as employees. This is what it means for our customers. And this is even what it means that we expect from our suppliers. So it was really awesome. But what was frustrating is at the end, the CEO mentioned, he said, do you guys like that? We paid a marketing company $10,000 to create this for us. And it kind of took the wind out of the sales, to be honest. My thought at that time was, you trust a, a marketing company to know more about your employees, your customers, and your suppliers than you do. So it was, it, we were kind of baffled, and it, and it actually became a joke. One that was the most common was, I would have done that for $500, because at the time, there was you know, an economic crunch, and so we spent $10,000 on this, and there's some people here who need more hours and, and things like that. So it didn't sit well, but we, we liked it because it was a great direction that we'd never had before. And so they put poster on the wall, they put, a, they put it on our website, and you know, that was six years ago, seven years ago, and that's the last I ever heard of it. Like it never, nothing ever transpired. It was never even brought up again. It, it seemed like a nice fluffy piece for the, the meeting and for the website. And then at least in the location we were at, there was no action ever taken on it 
again. I love the things we did. It was really cool because, you know, the things we'd do would be you'd watch the Super Bowl and be halftime show and it'd be, you know, the Lombardi trophy that's 100 feet tall that we had made. And frankly, the output of my job I loved. Like, it was so neat to see these things. Like, even, you know, last year we went to Las Vegas and in the Taco Bell, there's an animated ceiling that I wired myself on my last day of work because we actually fired the electrician. And so this had to ship. I'm like, I know how to wire. So we wired it. And that's just a cool story when you look up the ceiling, you see the animated bell at, at the Taco Bell Cantina on the strip, and, and you know that you had a part in that. So there are parts of it that are really, really cool. What isn't cool is the person I developed into from being around that stress. So it's hard to, to keep pushing and pushing to meet, meet a due date when, you know, people have been there Saturday, Sunday. You know, you got to focus because the Super Bowl is on a certain date, and, and it's not going to move for you because you don't have the Lombardi Trophy done. And so it does get taxing and grinding. I developed migraines every Sunday night. I was sick, like headaches and headaches, because um, I was so stressed out about missing the Super Bowl or FedEx not delivering on time. And I'd get phone calls at 10, 11, 12 at night on the weekends, on family vacations. Um, and I know that comes. There, there's rewards, you know, for giving up things, you know, like those kinds of uh, stressful situations. There's pay associated with things like that. And it's cool to see your stuff on the MTV Music Awards and, and things like that. But when you're visiting the, the toilet to throw up every Sunday night before work and you give your very best to the people nine to five and then you come home and you're short with the people who matter the most, it kind of... Uh, make sure reevaluate and and the great thing is like over time I realized that's on me like I didn't handle some of those situations as well as I could because I just wanted to perform at work like what I know now the more you invest in one hiring employees that meet your company's culture uh, and then invest in your employees the better your product is going to be the better your relationship with the customers are going to be and really the better the output or the product is I think what I've learned is it's not the other way around the, the company doesn't make the employee successful the employee makes the company successful and then I think companies can make good employees don't get me wrong I think there it's there's a great relationship there but I love how bamboo focuses on on me as an employee and on my interactions with my coworkers and my family and trusting that the improvements I make in myself are going to make improvements um, to the company. And I think they do. Um, I've seen my desire to get better at my job in increase. Bamboo lets me run. They, they encourage me to think outside the box and to get better, but they, they rein me in with crucial conversations and understanding, you know, there's limits on what I can do, but your employees make the world a difference in the culture you have around them and, and the happiness of your employees leads to happy customers. Part three, grow better. Katie Burke is the chief people officer at HubSpot. She manages the teams responsible for delivering a remarkable and inclusive candidate and employee experience. During her time leading people initiatives at HubSpot, the company has been named the number one best place to work by Glassdoor, the number one best place to work for women by Comparably, and a best place to work for parents by Fortune. Prior to her current role, Katie started HubSpot's culture team and oversaw global communications during the company's IPO. Katie is a culture expert. She spent the better part of a decade focused on building great culture at HubSpot. So we asked her a bit about her story, how she ended up leading the charge on HubSpot's culture, and why it became and continues to be a top priority. Turns out, 
The story actually starts with a marketing problem. HubSpot had an interesting story. People, we were a buzzworthy brand. A lot of people knew about us. But when I would go out in Boston and say like, hey, what's up, Brad? You know, I haven't seen you in a while. You're working at HubSpot. I just bought fill in the blank, a competitive software. And you're like, well, did you consider us? No, I thought you guys were an agency. I thought you were a blog. I thought you were a content machine. So a lot of people knew of HubSpot, were familiar with their content and their presence in the marketing world. But the fact that HubSpot was inbound marketing software for small and medium-sized businesses somehow evaded a lot of people. And so prior to, to a potential IPO, I knew we had to make sure that investors and customers and prospects and partners knew that we sold software. And so a chance meeting with Brian in the kitchen at HubSpot, one of his most common questions to all of our employees is what would you do if you were CEO of HubSpot? And I said, I'd really crank the engine on communications. And he said, why don't you do that? And I was like, well, you know, it wasn't exactly what I was hired for and I'm not so sure. And I kind of went to business school to avoid <laughs> that. And I had every excuse in the world. And then I said, you know what, this could be really high impact. And so I raised my hand to do it, uh, took over the comms team a week and a half later. And our singular focus at the time was to get people to write HubSpot, comma, an inbound marketing software company in, in the papers. And so we pitched a ton of stories and as luck would have it, that was my technical job, but the first projects I took on were launching the culture code with Darmesh. And then the second thing was opening up our first office internationally in Dublin. So right away, communications and culture were sort of irrevocably linked. If you're not familiar with the culture code, it's an incredibly detailed 128-page document outlining HubSpot's culture. The document has served as inspiration for millions of people. In fact, on SlideShare alone, it's been viewed more than five and a half million times. Fast forward a couple years, and Katie finds herself right in the middle of HubSpot's IPO. She and HubSpot's management team understood the importance of articulating culture as a differentiator and emphasized the company's unique approach. Throughout the process, a really interesting question pops up. One of the things that kept coming up time and time again was we wanted to know why so few companies scale after their IPO. So you've seen so many companies who get to the IPO day, that's the highlight. And then two years later, they sort of sputter out of gas. And so we are a learning culture at HubSpot. We set out to talk to as many companies as we could and as many leaders as we could. And we kind of said, okay, why did it work for these companies and why did it not? And sure enough, we found that in the autopsy of every company that didn't work out, everyone said the same thing. It was great until it wasn't. Something mm -hmm. changed in the culture, the people changed, the vibe changed, a key leader left and everything kind of, you know, was no longer as it was before. And so we had this moment as we were creating the deck that really our culture and team were gonna be the ingredients that helped us get to the next level. And this is where Katie's career takes an unexpected turn. Three days after the IPO, Darmesh asked me to go to dinner and basically said, I think you should take over our culture team. And I said, well, we don't have a culture team, so there's no way I can take that over. And he said, well, I think you should start one. Uh, and I politely declined. I said, thanks so much. It sounds like a good way to be unemployed in a few years. And I politely declined a few more times. Uh, my parents thought it was an absolutely crazy idea. And sure enough, <laughs> after a while, I finally said yes and thought, what's the worst that could happen? And so I started really on culture. And of course, every new career opportunity comes with its own set of challenges, and Katie's was no exception. When I first started on the culture team, our goal was we had put out the culture code document. And, you know, one interesting lesson about the culture code was when I took it on, we had over a million views. And now we have over 5 million views. It was an incredible, incredible piece of content. 
but your culture code is only as good as the degree to which you live it every day. So when I took over the culture, culture team, there was still a gap between who we said we wanted to be and who we were. And my entire job was to close the gap between rhetoric and reality. Okay, this is where a lot of the fun begins. I mean, what does it look like when you make culture a top priority? Or do you even start? Maybe you've daydreamed about getting in a position where you could do this. For Katie, it was a popular book, a cheesy ocean slide, and the determination to live HubSpot's values even when hard. When I first started HubSpot, Blue Ocean Strategy was the number one book. We had conference rooms named after both authors. And so, you know, I knew that I would probably have a little more success if I started with Blue Ocean Strategy. So for those who haven't read the book, the, the concept is pretty simple, which is to say that there's a competitive market, the red ocean, where people are competing mostly around price. And then there's a blue ocean where there's a ton of opportunity, but you have to uniquely kind of differentiate yourself on something other than price to really win there. And so we applied a blue ocean strategy to all things culture. So the first thing that I actually did was to present to our board on what we were going to do on that front. And it was called a blue ocean strategy. It actually had, I'm embarrassed to say, an ocean visual on it, which was incredibly cheesy, but very literal and kind of worked. And so what we did was um, at the time we set a few objectives. Um, one, at the time, HubSpot was winning a lot of awards and was really well-recognized as a great place for people to start their career, but we were having trouble retaining people or attracting people who had seen the movie before, and we knew we kind of needed to grow up our employee experience. And so one of our goals we set out to do early was to become a best place to work for families and for parents. And so in terms of how we did that, we extended our parental leave, we started a parents ERG, which is still one of our most popular employee resource groups. We really learned from companies that had led the way there. And that was a really intentional strategic choice that we picked over others. Uh, same thing, I would say our diversity report at the time we released. So this will be our fifth annual diversity report this year. Boston-based companies don't really release their diversity data. So East Coast companies, it wasn't really a trend that had kind of reached the East Coast yet. And we decided we're going to be innovators. And being innovators on that front, as you might imagine, had some downside to it. There were, you know, publications that ran our numbers and said, these aren't super impressive. And so I think taking a risk to go, you know, this is where you, it comes down to, you have to live your values even when they're hard. I'm going to pause here for a second because this strikes a chord on a personal level. I joined Bamboo HR as CEO in 2019, just months before the pandemic, and found myself tasked with leading an organization that's known for a, its strong culture, for being a great place to work. And leading in the midst of this incredible turmoil, not only is it founders just having handed over the reins to a new CEO, but add to that the need to adapt to a new way of work, working from home nearly overnight. And we're talking about a lot of change. And anytime you take culture and change and mix those together, there tends to be a bad connotation and you need to actively manage that. However, growing organizations are not strangers to change and there is a need to evolve and unlock new opportunities in the future. And that leads me to the next part of my conversation with Katie. How do you stay true to your culture while scaling and not trip up? So we had a meeting after our company meeting after our IPO and Brian got up in front of the entire organization and he and I worked together on this talk track and we basically said, 
if you believe, you know, he said, I believe the best days of HubSpot are ahead of us. And by the way, that promise has been very true. That was in 2014. I believe the best days of HubSpot are ahead of us. And I'm going to give you some compelling reasons today why I hope you feel the same. But if you are someone who thinks our best days were in 2012, 2011, when you first joined the company, when your team was tiny, when we, you know, weren't sure if we were going to get to the next level, that's okay. We appreciate your service. We appreciate your time, but we really want to build a company where people are excited to be here. And so I think he set a really good tone at the top on the fact that we are going to need to change. We are going to need to grow up and that you should be excited about that. So really being forward looking and how we're thinking about our culture versus talking about the good old days. So one of the most common expressions at HubSpot is these are the good old days. So I find myself really, we've had to revamp our new hire training. We found for a while, people would keep talking about like, oh, this employee back in the day, and this is a great example. And we really want to make sure we update those examples. So our new employees know that you don't have to be a HubSpot veteran like I am for the last eight years to make an impact. Here's an example of someone who started last month and something that they're doing that's really great. Um, and so I think nostalgia can kill company cultures. And so I think it's really important to be proud of where you're from. I'm really proud of our history but I'm super proud of how we've scaled as an organization. And so one thing that uh, our board member, Lori Norrington shared with me at one point is she said, you can't actually see scale when you're a leader. So explaining to someone how to scale, you really can't see it. And oftentimes as a leader, it hits you like a ton of bricks. I'm sure you've been in the same moments I have where you just sort of go like, how did we get so big? And how am I spending my time? And is it in the right way? And so part of what you have to do is get people, get people prepared to scale their own leadership and also to welcome folks in who have seen the movie before, who can add really valuable leadership insights, perspectives we haven't seen before, that sort of thing. And I think that balance is really tough and hard. But I think one of the ways you have to tackle it is by making sure you normalize the fact that change is normal. If we were the same company that we were when I started at 400 employees, our culture wouldn't be fun. Things would have broken down. We wouldn't be as successful as we were. And so I think embracing change as a constant is really important. And one of the things we try and do is give people examples of where that's actually happened so they know it's possible, feasible, and something, you know, at their fingertips. So by way of example, we have a gentleman on our support team. He did a wiki post internally with the entire organization to rally people around for Black History Month and share an example of a leader that they admired. And I sent him a note and I was like, hey, I just want to say like, this is really great. Thank you so much for adding it. And he's like, I can't believe I'm allowed to post. I was like allowed to post it. This is amazing. I'm super excited that you did it. Thanks for your help and for your contributions. And I think he is the example we want to emulate, right? So if we could hire more people like him, I'd be super excited. And so I think it's really important to reward recent people who are adding to your culture versus just talking in the past about a new team that was spun up or a new division. How you contribute to our culture has changed over the years, but in, I think, really positive ways. And I think it's important to highlight those. I love hearing Katie's call out of the positive impact an individual can have on the culture. It's incredible. The potential each person has to influence an organization's culture for good or bad. So much so that many recruiting teams actually focus on what is called, quote, culture fit. This is a term that has been on my mind a lot lately and something we frequently discuss at Bamboo HR. Katie has an insightful way of looking at so-called culture fit. We have done our very best to completely eradicate the term culture fit from our vocabulary. And so we embarked on an initiative about two years ago as part of our diversity and inclusion mission to basically say, 
culture fit is limiting and we need people who are going to stretch and add to our culture and not fit it. And so we need to make sure we're really thoughtful about this. So we now have a culture training that you can take to be an interviewer. So basically, you know what and how to ask about culture, but we also make sure we're really thoughtful that the questions and the behaviors we're trying to incentivize are all about additive natures to our culture versus people who fit kind of the paradigm of who's succeeded at HubSpot before. And I think oftentimes that takes, that requires uh, some discipline on the part of the recruiter and the hiring manager and the slate of interviewers. And I also think it requires a little bit of imagination. So rather than looking for sameness, so the example we always give is it used to be the airplane test was how you hired people. Would you want to sit with them, you know, on an airplane for, for hours and hours at a time? And what we said is basically we used a lot of data to, to support this to say that actually doesn't create our, our best hires. And then the other thing we did was we looked at data and almost everyone thinks that they're good at assessing culture fit and very few people actually are. And so when you change the paradigm to say we're looking at culture ad, all of a sudden a world of opportunities open up, not just for candidates to get hired who might not otherwise, but also for HubSpot. Because if we hire a ton of people who think we have the best culture in the world and nothing could be changed, we're not going to improve fast enough for our customers and we're not going to innovate on our product in a way that's compelling. And so a good example of a great culture ad question to me is I often ask people, what slide did you wish was in the culture code that you didn't see? Or which one would you have edited out and why? Which one did you think was problematic or troublesome or you wanted to know more about? And right away, you're starting on the path of don't tell me how great we are. Tell me what you think we can fix. Make a suggestion. Have a compelling idea for something we could do better or differently. And so when new hires start, I'll often say, what part of your experience as a candidate could have been better and why? lead people to conversation challenging disagreement versus leading people to be star fans of what you're doing. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, it's nice to get a compliment, but it's so much more important and compelling to get someone who, when you're in the trenches, is going to say, I have an idea of how to make this better and is willing to work with you to fix it. As we work our way through these insights around building culture, I think it's important to realize that none of us do this perfectly. Each of our organizations is going to struggle in some way, shape, or form. We certainly have our own challenges at Bamboo HR, and I pressed Katie on one of hers at HubSpot. You may know of the book written about HubSpot's culture. Released in 2016, it was written by a former HubSpot employee, and in short, it wasn't very friendly to HubSpot. Sure. So I think, you know, tough lesson for us. Uh, I think we all thought the book about HubSpot's culture would be a little different than how things went down. But the reality is everything that people say about your culture teaches you an important lesson. And so one of the things that I always share with people is our founders published an open letter about the book on LinkedIn. Dharmesh shared it on LinkedIn. And I, I'm not sure I've ever been so proud as I was that day of like, it was a tough lesson, tough pill to swallow. And we embraced it with transparency, with humility, with a commitment to getting better. And so internally, we basically had a bunch of messaging that talked about, here are some changes we're going to make that had valid criticisms of HubSpot and our culture and things we're going to do to improve them. And then, oh, by the way, here are some things that were hurtful uh, and that we have a different perspective on. And here's kind of our take on them. I think the truth of the matter is that no organization is as good as their best press and no organization is as bad as their worst press. 
But I think the truth that matter is you have to make sure you're always innovating and that you're listening to tough feedback. That was certainly tough feedback at a scale that I'm not sure we were interested in, but I think it also ultimately humbled us and led us to uh, greener pastures. And so from my perspective, I'm proud of how we reacted, changed it and acted with humility and transparency through it. And I think our employees who were there at the time really felt that we cared for them, that we prioritized their well-being and their transparency, knowing what we were thinking, and then also that we created some changes that were compelling for the future of the company. The resilience and grit demonstrated by Katie's response and HubSpot's reaction to the harsh criticisms of their culture, I think really epitomizes their company mission, Grow Better. In fact, Grow Better is a great summation of my entire conversation with Katie about her journey at HubSpot and how culture became front and center for their organization. At Bamboo HR, one of our core values is grow from good to great. It's an important principle that primarily focuses on individual growth, which in turn then ladders up into organizational growth. I love this value at Bamboo HR because it does speak to the individual. And me as an individual, can I choose to move beyond maybe what's comfortable and to stretch myself in new ways that, that, that benefit me, but also benefit Bamboo? Earlier, we heard from Mark about how not to implement a corporate mission. Let's listen to Katie provide context around HubSpot's Grow Better mission, specifically what it looks like for individual employees. So I think in two important ways, the growth, first of all, the growth mindset, I think is just critical to how we operate. And one of the things we try and do as an executive team is model that behavior. So we have a field trip every year where we learn from companies that we admire. Obviously in non-pandemic times, we used to get on a flight and then a bus and literally take a bus to different companies and take notes and share things we learned. And we would share out our notes. And it's part of modeling that growth is part of what we are expected to do as well. So I think that growth mindset is important. But to me, the most exciting part is the better part of it. So to me, part of our organizational growth strategy is not just to help millions of organizations grow better, as you said, but to grow better ourselves along the way. And so I think of that as connecting our employee experience goals with our customer experience goals. So I'll give you an example. In the middle of the pandemic last year, we had a customer who was from Italy, but living in Ireland and, you know, really at the height of the pandemic in Italy. And so her family and friends were really impacted. And so she was emotional on a call with one of our customer support reps. And our customer support rep called her manager and they called the core CS team and our head of all in the SCS sent this person uh, flowers, a note that we were thinking of her and we had her in for our voice of the customer meeting to meet with all of our executives. And she said, you know, there are a lot of software companies in this world. There are a lot of places where I could spend my money, but ultimately it's about interacting with people who care. And what we find in customer interviews over and over again is people say like, yes, I love your product, it's amazing. And I also love the people who build the product because they respond to my ideas when I submit them on the ideas forum. They, they actively solicit my feedback. Like our product and engineering team really cares. Our support team really cares. Our sales rep really cares. And so to me, you know, oftentimes people will say like, yeah, you're, you were more of a business leader before. How do you go back office? And I think, no, 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 we're on the bleeding edge of what we're doing. And when I hear customers give us feedback like that, I know that our team is instrumental in how the organization is growing better and that customers and prospects care as much about working with great people as our candidates and employees do. And so to me, people talk about customer experience and, you know, employee experience as though they're, you know, so, so different. And I really view them essentially as one and the same. I'm going to come back to empathy in future episodes. Why? Well, Katie just shared a perfect example. 
HubSpot's employees are so passionate about doing their jobs well that they empathized with a customer who was struggling during COVID-19 and then took action to help. This is the humanity that's missing in so many workplaces and so many interactions. This leads to the virtuous circle we all should strive for. Fulfilled employees, satisfied customers, and thriving businesses. As I said before, I believe we're entering the employee experience era. And the surest way to succeed as an organization in this new era is to focus first on the employee experience. In this example and countless others that I've seen, as companies focus on individual employees, those individual employees are better prepared to carry out their company's mission. In other words, employee obsessed is the new customer obsessed. Today, we just scratched the surface with culture. In our next episode, we'll go even deeper into culture. We'll talk with other HR experts and cover topics like growing a culture from the ground up, getting executive buy-in, and the difference between values and culture. To learn more about HubSpot, visit their website at HubSpot.com. And if you haven't already, go read their culture code. Thank you for joining us on this maiden voyage of the era. We've enjoyed learning and growing with you as we discuss topics that are so critical to all of our futures. We look forward to having you join us next time for episode two. We hope you enjoyed today's HR Work Showcase, and thanks again to our partners at Bamboo HR for sharing the debut episode of The Era. Be sure to check out the second episode of The Era in July 2022, and don't forget to subscribe to the HR Works Podcast channel to keep up to date with all of our latest shows in the HR Works Podcast family.